0: Hi, everyone. This is Yin. I hope you're doing well, or at least okay, given all that's happening amidst COVID-19. I put a pause on some of the conversations I had recorded to bring you conversations that might be a bit more relevant, given all that's happening around us and to us. So in this episode, I talked to Jenny Wang, who is a licensed psychologist practicing in Houston, Texas. We talked a lot about anxiety, what it is, how may it manifest in our lives, and some suggestions on how to lessen it reminder that podcasts are not a substitute for therapy. If you're looking for a therapist, Jenny had put together an Asian American therapist directory. A link to it is on the show notes. And if you're having trouble finding a therapist, you can email AsiansDoTherapy at gmail.com, and I can try to help you find one. So be safe, take care of yourselves and of each other. And here's my conversation with Jenny. Jenny, if you could just introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what your practice is like.
1: Sure. So my name is Jenny Wang. I'm a licensed psychologist in Houston, Texas. My practice is actually one in which I exclusively serve women. So a lot of my clients tend to be mothers, working mothers, working professionals. Um, A lot of medical professionals since we're in Houston, so a large medical city. And I tend to attract a lot of clients of color. Interestingly, given that Houston is such a diverse city, we don't have a ton of clinicians that are people of color. Mm -hmm. So I think I end up attracting um, clients who are interested in somebody who maybe can get experiences related to racial trauma or intergenerational um, stress and things that are unique to um, an immigrant experience.
0: And how did you become a psychologist? Like I'm just curious a little bit about your background.
1: So I went to college with a very kind of immigrant mindset. My parents wanted me to do business or pharmacy or a very practical career. Uh, So I started college as an accounting major and quickly realized that I think it was just sucking the soul out of me. I just didn't enjoy it. There was no human factor to it. So I basically at that point in my junior year decided to take Psych 101. And it just like opened my mind to what was out there and what career possibilities look like for counseling fields. But since I was a junior, I was kind of behind in terms of a lot of the research and even coursework. So I changed majors and became a finance major and then started taking all my psychology coursework in my last two years of college. And I remember my research mentor said to me, he was a Caucasian older male said, you're not getting into PhD programs. There's no way. Wow. (laughs) And he said, you should apply to master's programs and then go for your PhD later. And at that point in my life, I just, I felt like if I was going to go down this path, it would happen. If not, I always had a backup. I could always go into business. Mm -hmm. And so I applied and got into several programs and was just felt like this was it, you know, the doors Mm -hmm. had opened and it was really meaningful to me that, um, I didn't know one Asian psychologist and I was in Texas. I mean, I was in a huge public university. Yeah nobody that looked like me and so I think that was a lot of the impetus for pursuing this career because Mm -hmm. I think it was something that just felt like almost like a mission that you know kind of like challenge accepted I wanted to see um, how a career could be melded with my identity and have meaning there
0: yeah totally and to bring a critical lens to what we're learning you know like kind of all these studies all this research all the papers all the theories are created by sort of a white majority mind and how do how do we take what's what's relevant what feels relevant and kind of incorporate other aspects to it it's, i think it's so important absolutely well one of the reasons i wanted to talk to you today is because of what we're experiencing you know we're like in the middle of a pandemic and um you know, we're recording this on April 6th. So like, so there's the pandemic of the coronavirus and then this other pandemic that people are are talking about for Asian Americans, kind of the violence and the harassment and the xenophobia. So those two things are happening. And I think there's this other layer of, depending on our particular circumstances, whether we can work from home, whether we have children, whether we're losing our jobs, different things are at the forefront of our, our experience, but one I think one underlying thing that might be common to the regardless of your circumstances is like a sense of anxiety. You know, I hear from a lot of people, I'm really feeling anxious, you know, it's kind of just present, omnipresent. So I just want to really talk to you today about anxiety. You know, what it is, how do we how do we cope? How do we think about it as as clinicians? And mm-hmm. so is that like a fair thing to say that anxiety is kind of permeating everybody's experience? Absolutely. I feel it. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. Um, so how do we think about anxiety? You know, because I think a lot of people talk about I'm anxious, you know, I have anxiety. But what what is it really kind of clinically and not just clinically, but kind of how do we th- what is this thing called anxiety? How do we think about it?
1: Yeah, I think there's I think sometimes when I try to frame it for clients, there's A lot of times anxiety tends to be future focused. You know, this sense of uncertainty, a sense of fear, a sense of panic for things that we feel perhaps out of control about. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, sometimes we feel it at a very kind of cognitive level. We can identify the thoughts. We can identify the panic related kind of thought processes that are going on. Mm -hmm. But actually, for a lot of my clients, they feel it in a very visceral level. They have nightmares, they have, um, you know, they're sweating, their heart rate goes up, um, they feel dizzy, all those kind of symptoms. And so sometimes my clients don't recognize that it's anxiety. They just like to call it as stress, as on a very kind of basic level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I tend to think of anxiety as kind of having, you know, if you think about the CBT components, right? There's the emotional, the cognitive, and the behavioral manifestations. Often when I'm talking to clients or working with them, I'm looking for those realms. I'm looking for symptoms that are kind of in those different areas. But if I were to summarize anxiety, I would say fear, lack of control, and almost like a ruminative process.
0: Yeah. When you talked about the cognitive behavior, can you kind of break it down? Like the cognitive would be... I guess maybe examples under each so people can identify like
1: sure um so you know one cognitive one that I think relates to the pandemic is just this sense of like oh my gosh things are falling apart I the catastrophic thinking the bias thinking where um, there's a sense of you know everywhere everyone around me is gonna get sick I need to protect myself, but I don't feel adequate to protect myself. There's different thought processes that go on when we have anxiety and they tend to circulate again and again. And so as you're reading the news and you're getting information, it's getting assimilated into those fears. And so some of those thoughts are, I don't have control. I don't know what's coming next. I feel as though I may lose my job at any second. And playing out those thoughts, feel make it in many ways, make it feel real to us. And that's a struggle that a lot of my clients have is they can tell you rationally that, yeah, you know, I've had, I, my job seems secure. I don't seem to be at risk of losing my job. Mm-hmm. But the fear and the anxiety is enough to make them feel like it will happen. And they don't have a sense of control over that. So um, there, that's kind of the cognitive. Is that yeah? Really that's helpful? really
0: helpful. Totally okay. helpful. Yeah.
1: Um, and then in terms of emotional, I almost feel like it goes hand in hand with the thought processes. So if I feel like the world is unpredictable and I have no control, right? Then emotionally, you feel overwhelmed. You feel this kind of like fatalistic. The world is ending, um, and it and it feels. Um, you know, panic inducing and all of those things. And so when the emotional side kicks in, then I think, too, it triggers the physical symptoms, right? So kind of leading up to a panic attack, we may have thoughts of, you know, do I have enough money to get through this month? And I'm go- am I going to pay my rent on time? Mm-hmm. And as that kind of thought process happens, then the heart rate goes up. Maybe we start to have shortness of breath you know, our hands start to sweat, we start to get dizzy, we feel almost out of our bodies. And that then escalates to a point where for some people it manifests as a panic attack and, you know, they feel very out of control.
0: And I think what you were saying earlier around um, the behavioral piece, it can manifest in like checking messages or news, or trying to prepare for this, you know, the, the, the stockpiling of stuff, you know, like different behavioral things that are symptomatic of the anxiety, I guess. Mm -hmm. And I think for some people, myself included, I think I just notice a a certain overproductivity, like, you know, (laughs) I don't, I wouldn't label myself an anxious, like what we imagine a traditionally anxious person is, but it manifests Mm -hmm. in different ways where I'm like, working more than I had before and just different pieces to it. Have you noticed that as well with with certain people? It might not look like anxiety, but it's something related to it.
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Um, I think some of my clients are, you know, I almost have to say, hey, are you at risk of burning out? because the crisis has kind of activated all their coping and for some people their coping is very behavioral and so they maybe are signing up to make face masks you know a lot of people are sewing face masks and people are um, you know volunteering to deliver groceries to the elderly they're trying to take something that is very out of their control and create control by doing actual behaviors that are you know altruistic or helpful to the community xyz Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I think that's effective in the short term, right? It mm-hmm. gives you somewhere to, to focus that anxious energy and, and attention. On the flip side, though, if we're not staying attuned to how we are, we're at risk of burning out because we're, we're at all max levels, right? Working more than we typically. Some of us have kids. Some of us are cooking all the time, doing a lot of tasks that we used to outsource, so I think you're absolutely right that for some people, the anxiety looks like it's a pro-social behavior, right? But I worry about those people sometimes more because they're not attuned to maybe what's going on in the back end for them.
0: And, and what is the, what do you think is happening in the back end?
1: I think a lot of it is that we don't know how long this will last. And so in the context of the, this background sense, our lives have gone through, I mean, a fundamental change that I think is triggering a lot of grief for clients um, you know this morning I went to the grocery store and I picked up some sprinkles and frosting because my son's birthday is next week and you know I felt very sad doing this knowing that we're fortunate enough to even make him a cake but this idea that we've had a loss here of a life that we had envisioned a life that we had planned and so underlying this, I think there's the anxiety piece, of course, and the fear, but there's a sense of sadness and loss that people have canceled trips. People can't even see their grandparents. I get sad every time we see our parents from afar because I just want to embrace them, but I can't. Um, so I think there's the grief and then there's the loneliness. This is a, such a lonely time for so many of us. And And we would do anything to be able to sit down and have a drink with a friend or to, you know, be able to go on a walk with your neighbor, you know, things like that. But that can't happen right now. Mm -hmm. So I think those are some of the things. I'm sure there are many more.
0: Yeah, I think there is, um, we don't realize the things that were kind of maybe grounding or took some things for granted, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, the ability to have a drink or a coffee with a friend, you know, it just feels mm-hmm. like so that, that there is certainly a loss there. But and I think there is also this, you know, you, you mentioned loss, this grief of what things could be. You know, people are missing graduations, birthdays, weddings, you know, funerals. Like there's a lot of rituals that we had available to us to sustain us is not isn't quite available anymore. And I think there's this piece of sort of um, I wonder if you think anger is part of it, the sort of anxiety to temper anger, because mm-hmm. I just think about the ways that we feel so unprotected and so left to our own devices by our government, <laughs> by, mm-hmm. you know, like, how do we even get here? especially people that are less resourced, you know, financially or you know, otherwise like I feel like there's an element of anger and helplessness that I think might be feeling might be adding to the anxious, like and not being able to fully articulate it.
1: Absolutely. I think the anger piece, I haven't quite seen it yet in my clients per se, but I think because it's still early on. But I think as we move into month two and month three, I think that piece might reveal itself more because it will, it will be harder to honestly kind of discharge into anxiety you know, even just talk about gender roles. A lot of women are bearing the brunt of a lot of these tasks that previously we were outsourcing by eating out and having cleaners and things. Yeah. And so it also makes me wonder as the time prolongs, if couples are unable to adapt to the needs and to create kind of more balanced um, tasks within the home, especially if they have children, especially if they have multiple children, things like that, how that will create a lot of conflict um, and anger within those relationships. So yes, I think anger is definitely lurking.
0: And you also bring up a good point around people that are confined or Isolating into their homes with whoever it is in their homes, whether it's a roommate or a, fa- a family in a multi-generational f- households, like there's a lot that could be anxiety provoking in those tight situations where before maybe you had a buffer, you could go to school, you could go to work, could hang out with friends, but now there's no buffer.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: what happens in that sort of environment?
1: Yes people's coping resources are somewhat limited people mm-hmm. maybe are used to leaving the home to exercise as a way of coping or different things like that that they're having to rework and adapt to and so as people are having a harder time maybe coping in their traditional ways kind of previous ways they it, it they feel overwhelmed and more tapped out and so it's creating these kind of people are bouncing off of each other with these you know, all these energies that are often negative and, um, and then being trapped, you know, it's kind of, I imagine all these atoms hitting each other and just kind of, off.
0: yeah, totally. One, one other thing that came up to me as I was thinking about, you know, anxiety and what's happening and kind of, you mentioned like being sort of more future oriented, what might happen in the future. I get the sense also that it's like, what has happened in the past might happen in the future, kind of some trauma response um, for some people are also kind of activating sort of these anxious feelings, Uh, whether it's an immigrant trauma or whether it is racial trauma or this anxiety of what will happen to me as an Asian person when I walk out. I wonder if you're seeing that a lot in working with clients.
1: Yeah, I think that in working with clients, the, the racial trauma piece has been pronounced. I think um, a lot of the clients that I've been seeing recently are buying mace. They are you know, hesitant to leave their home by themselves. There are different things that are forcing people to take pause before they engage in normal routine behaviors that they never would have questioned in the past. I mean, we have, you know, individuals who don't wear masks or hadn't because of fear that it would elicit, you know, a racially charged response. And so I think that piece of trauma you know, you think about domestic violence and how that's also on the rise, you know, and so you think about people in relationships who are confined again and they've been hurt in the past and now they're at high risk of being hurt again. So, absolutely, that trauma piece and this feeling of scarcity, too, you know, being very prominent amongst immigrant families and our older generation, you know, our parents it's almost their way of coping, right, because they're, they've been there before where they had very little. And so having to prepare becomes the primary focus of how they kind of can cope with what's going on. So I think you're absolutely right that the trauma piece is going to run through many storylines um, throughout this pandemic time.
0: Yeah. It's coming together with what's happening in the present, right? Sort of it's like a, it's affecting or influencing how we react or how we cope or how well or how not well we're do, coping. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we talked a lot about <laughs> what anxiety is, how it manifests, you know, why it might be happening. Kind of switch gears and talk about what do people do, you know, when they are feeling anxious, when they're noticing these thoughts or these behaviors that are, you know, maybe not as helpful. I don't want to say helpful, but these behaviors that are stressful or what, what are some things that you suggest to clients or what, how do you work with it with, with clients?
1: I think the first thing that has come up recently is, you know, I always talk to my clients about relying on basic things initially. So are you getting enough sleep? Are you eating well? Are you moving your body in some shape or form? Um, Are you drinking water? You know, like we really, I think in those early weeks, my emphasis was we just need to protect basic needs right now. Because if you're not sleeping well, your anxiety gets much worse and everything else in that day becomes interpreted in a much more negative lens because you're simply tired. And Mm -hmm. I think we've all been there before. And so I think You know, I had many back to the basics talks with my clients who were used to running at 150 miles an hour. And suddenly it came to an abrupt halt. And so then it was, now what do I do? Where do I put that energy? And so I was like, move your body and go to sleep. Then as the first week or two settled, I noticed that, you know, everybody started working from home. And some of my clients would say, well, I just woke up and went downstairs in my PJs and started fielding calls, you know. And, and they would say, though, that that didn't feel like the right rhythm for them. And so we started talking a lot more about what does your schedule look like? what is your rhythm? Because a lot of times our lives before this were dictated by external structures, you know, to provide a schedule and things that we needed to attend to. And now I think that it's helpful to establish a rhythm for ourselves. So if it means you start the day, you know, with a walk in the morning and you actually get ready, get changed you don't have to dress into a suit but you know get changed start your day in a way that allows you to say hey this is the beginning of something new and then we talked a lot about creating and i say this a lot with my clients creating slices of joy mm-hmm. and so you know i've had clients say They are doing instituting cocktail hour at their homes, and they're trying to have different rhythms where they go on walks with their kids and go on bike rides at certain times. And so it breaks up the day so that it doesn't feel like it's this overwhelming 12 hours of time that is, you know, free flowing, unpredictable. Life is already unpredictable enough. And so a lot of emphasis on structure and schedule, and it doesn't need to be rigid but it offers a way for you to frame the day.
0: Do you think that that structure, you know, because I am just in reading things online and whatever, you know, people are like, yeah, I have structure, have a schedule. And is it really for a sense of control? Is it mostly for that? You think that that helps lessen the anxiety?
1: I think there's a sense of predictability. I Mm -hmm. think for some people it can aid in giving them a sense of control. Some Mm -hmm. of my clients have said that,
0: you know, where, That's a helpful reframe, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Not control, predictability. Yeah, that's good.
1: (laughs) But I think for some, they feel very out of control. And so having a a schedule in which they self-implement gives them, you know, maybe it's an illusion of control, but it provides Mm. some sense of that. Um, And I think, too, as much as our kids thrive, you know, on Structure and predictability. I honestly think adults do as well. So, you know, whenever you have a schedule, it allows you to prioritize more effectively. Mm -hmm. So instead of at the end of the day saying, I actually didn't get to do any of the things that were very important, in creating a structure, you're able to say, hey, these are those top three things I'd like to achieve today. And it also increases our sense of mastery. When we're in a time where we feel maybe we don't have a sense of mastery because work is upside down and life looks very different. On top of that, it gives us a way to schedule pleasure. Um, you know, I'm somebody who's often prioritizes practical over pleasure. And so almost having to schedule that into my day where I can say, hey, I'm going to do a 30-minute snuggle session with my kids. Or I'm going to spend time and sit down with my husband and have a cup of tea at the end of the day. Things that give you a sense of pleasure also can help make the day feel like it's not a day entirely filled with anxiety.
0: I think what the pleasure can do, you know, whether it's cooking or snuggling or talking to a friend or it mm-hmm. kind of lowers your nervous system. You know, yes. if you can enjoy that activity, you know, whether it's gardening, it kind of lowers your um activation, I guess, so it kind of can lessen that that somatic response that we have for anxiety. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Any other suggestions for people? I think those are helpful, the back-to-basics, creating some predictability and some joy in, in people's schedules and daily lives. Any other thoughts about what could be helpful for folks?
1: I think for some people, and this is not all of my clients, but some really respond to journaling. And so some sort of, if it's journaling, if it's art, if it's music, forms of expression in which people can really In a way, when you're trying to play a music piece, it's hard to be anxious at the same time. I mean, it's possible, but when you're trying to focus on the notes and you're trying to be moved by music, in a way, provides some temporary escape from that. I think the journaling, too, you know, there's a lot of research out of the Pennebaker Lab Um, out of UT Austin that looks at how writing affects our emotional response and even some of our health markers when we write as forms of expression and being able to put it out on paper. Um, And so I think those things, if you can create space for and if those resonate with you, I would suggest, you know, them as well. I think social, oh, go ahead.
0: I was just thinking like the the playing uh, a piece of music I think it made me think about this idea of being present. Like if you are present, then the future might not be as haunting. Um, so you can't, you know, because you can't think of these two things at the same time. So ways that people can be present, you know, music is, you know, your your auditory sense, but the, the other five senses can also help sort of paying attention to, I live in Portland, so the flowers have been amazing in the spring here for us. So mm-hmm. kind of really being captured by, by my senses with the flowers has been helpful, you know, just kind of being present, whether it's temperature, like just thinking about the five senses, what, what could engage you so that you can take you out of sort of this anxiety or thought process, fear loop a little Mm -hmm. bit.
1: Absolutely. I think so much of anxiety is living in your mind. Yeah. And so with a lot of clients, we talk a lot about those grounding techniques that you mentioned with, you know, what do you feel? What do you taste? What do you touch? What do you hear? What can you smell? I think, you know, your olfactory sense is one of the most powerful. So if it's essential oils, if it's lighting a candle, but something that brings you into this present moment, and if you're a meditator, which I I do feel like it can be extremely powerful, um, I find meditation to be extremely effective in developing the discipline of being present um and so lots of um apps like headspace calm um bunch of you know those apps are helpful in doing that
0: yeah and i think being like i like how you said the grounding five senses just think about what those are and what works for you because some people some things work better for some folks than other folks and Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be long even you know it could be Mm -hmm a few minutes here and there throughout the day that could help you kind of just lessen that anxiety and lessen the build up it's not yes. to get rid of it because we do we are living in sort of this you know uncertain time so the anxiety is going to be there but how how can we lessen it how can we temper it how can we get some relief from it and it doesn't have to be like an hour meditation. <laughs> yes, no, that would never happen in my house. <laughs> it could be a few minutes. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes.
0: And the writing, you're talking about the writing. What is it about the writing you think that get people, you were saying this sort of affects our emotional response. What do you think about the, what, what is it about writing?
1: I think there's something about the cathartic sense of taking what's, abstract that has no physical form and being kind of your thoughts and your anxiety and your panic and putting it out into the actual universe Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I think there's something powerful about bringing to light and putting it into you know written format and some people will type and blog and journal and those I think are also forms of this where in some ways it's almost like a release Mm -hmm. Where, in a way, I've put it down, it's been etched in paper, and I don't have to carry that Mm -hmm. internally all the time. I can come back to my journal and say, yeah, this reflects what's going on inside. Perhaps I can step away from it now for a little bit. That kind of psychological distance, Mm. I think for some people, can be helpful.
0: As you were talking, it reminded me of like writing to-do lists. You know, sometimes I'm like, oh, I've, and then when I write it down, I can actually put it down and be like, I'll, I'll come back to them. They'll still be there. Yes. So that is helpful.
1: And two, I think there's, um, you know, I often encourage my clients when they feel anxiety, like, and maybe they're not conscious of it yet, is to name the anxiety. You know, if they wake up in a panic and they've had a nightmare and they're sweating and they feel like the world is ending, you know, when you are that anxious, it can feel like I'm going to die. It can feel that severe. I often will tell them even to say it out loud, this is my anxiety. This is not, you know, it kind of gives you a way to say, hold on, let me check. Let me verify the facts. Is the world indeed going to end? Or is this my anxiety? And so it kind of helps you tampen down the amygdala and the limbic system and activate the prefrontal cortex, you know, that part of your brain that has more of the reasoning and the rationality. And it allows that part to catch up and say, hold on, you're not dying right Right, now. And this will pass.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important kind of reminder that, you know, sometimes we're so scared of feelings, whether they are anxiety or grief or anger or sadness, that like they will overtake us and, you know, and we can't get out of it. But the reality is they pass, Mm -hmm. especially if you allow them to come through and and be present with them. They generally pass. Even joy passes, unfortunately, right? You can be so ecstatic about something and then it passes um so that i think that's a good reminder and i think the other piece that reminded me you're talking about to name the anxiety i think it's important and also to name what's underneath the anxiety right mm-hmm. this person wakes up this is my anxiety and he made me feel oh, i'm scared you know mm-hmm. really that's what it really means and like and maybe there's some way that naming that what's underneath the anxiety can be relieving too like Absolutely. i'm just really scared about what's happening um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then maybe there is something they need with that with that feeling of fear it might be like my partner can you give me a hug can i right maybe talk to somebody about this or how can then this person feel supported in their fear because i think anxiety can be sort of amorphous sometimes and i think just giving it more of what it actually is underneath it can be helpful for some people
1: absolutely i think an important piece of anxiety is that it's not always good or bad, right? So a lot of times I talk with my clients about how for some of them, anxiety is very motivating or it gives them useful information as to what to do next. So for example, if I'm anxious about, you know, that we're, we're out of food, we didn't hoard, and we're, you know, now I'm anxious, we don't have food, it motivates me to go out and to be intentional about my next shopping trip. And so anxiety, in many ways, can be a very useful form of information, where you can, you know, it's almost like a red flag. It says, hey, there's something going on, kind of like what you were talking about, um, with naming the anxiety and also what's behind that, right? So there's a flag that's come up and now the question is is there something I can do? Right? Do can I reach out and have a virtual, you know, chat with a friend? Can I reach out to my spouse and say, "Hey, I feel really alone right now. I need some time with you." If the anxiety is able to prompt something that then gets you to behave and act, then it often dissipates, right? You get that need met. And it kind of melds away. The problem is if the anxiety gets triggered and there's nothing next, then it turns into rumination because there's right. nothing to right. discharge into.
0: Right. Now that's a good point. That then that's why knowing what the anxiety is about is 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 important because then you can do something about it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, as opposed to this sort of endless ruminating kind of permeating your experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The other thing that came up to me is like around how sometimes the anxiety, what you were talking earlier, can escalate, right? If there's no release from it, it can escalate into an anxiety attack or some use it interchangeably to a panic attack, but but like a higher level of anxiety. I just put it that way. Like how, how how do we give people some ideas about that when they're is not just kind of this permeating anxiety but it's kind of this escalated sense of fear Mm -hmm. like what are some suggestions um for people when they're in that state that's almost a panic attack or maybe it is a panic attack like how do you Mm -hmm. help them with that
1: i think when it gets to that state there we are talking about this sympathetic nervous system arousal and where basically we're in that kind of fight or flight mode and the world literally feels like it's falling apart or that we are going to lose control and we might die. It feels that way. And so um in those moments, you honestly, it's very hard to talk yourself out of that. You know, um and reaching out for support, you know, if you have somebody near you at that moment who is able to embrace you or hold you in some ways ground you um, can be extremely helpful. Or, you know, some people Will actually fill up a sink full of water and put ice cubes in it and submerge their face into it because it activates that um, vagal nerve response too, where it kind of de-escalates you almost instantaneously. When you're at that level of panic, it becomes much more physical grounding, I believe, than psychological or cognitive, because you can kind of always negotiate or talk your way your way out of that. But if it's a you know the grounding techniques we talked about like um, holding ice cubes you know uh, things like that where it actually breaks the anxiety response very quickly, um, I think is more effective if you're escalated to that point.
0: Right. Basically. Yeah, that's helpful because you know because it it is more physical and your brain is not gonna the reasoning part is not quite as effective at that point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one thing to also. Try to remember that it generally passes, even even yes. though it might feel like forever and so scary. That generally it passes if you can just hang on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like things like diaphragmatic breathing, though it can be very helpful in calming you down. Most people are so activated at that point that they can't even do that effectively. Yeah. They end up hyperventilating, and even like setting a timer, setting a ten-minute timer, and being like, okay this will likely pass in 10 to 15 minutes, you know, yeah. and allowing yourself to feel it and know that it will pass. It generally, you don't have panic attacks that last an hour.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, Very, yeah. very rare. <laughs> Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, any, anything, I mean, I think this has been so helpful. We talked about what anxiety is, what, how it can show up, the different manifestations of it, what people, what some suggestions of what, could be helpful to people is there anything that you feel like that we missed that you want to sh- talk about or
1: i think one interesting observation i made is that people are living in this these kind of diverse emotional states what i'm referring to is a lot of my clients will say i'm so fortunate i'm in a situation where you know we have food and we have shelter and we're safe and yet i'm terrified and i'm anxious and i I have so much panic about this. And they feel almost guilty or Mm -hmm. shameful that they feel the anxiety because they're in a fortunate situation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I think a lot of it is this feeling of you can have both, you know, where I think a lot of clients feel this struggle of like, I should feel very grateful and I shouldn't have any anxiety whatsoever. Mm -hmm. or they feel guilty having it. And that's been an interesting observation where, um, yeah, a lot of my clients are struggling with feelings of guilt because they know that there are people who are less fortunate. They know that there are healthcare professionals who are risking their lives daily and they are merely, you know, staying at home, you know, staying safe. And so that's been an interesting effect of all this that I've noticed in clients
0: and what are what are your thoughts about this guilt? Like how to how to work with it, or as a clinician, or as a as a human?
1: Yeah, and yeah. you know, honestly, I feel it as well. Right. Yeah. But I'm not at the hospital. I'm not on the front lines, and yet, you know, I do feel anxiety and I do feel stressed about all this. Um, and I think there's something to be said about allowing that guilt to also pass through, like we mm-hmm. would a natural emotion. And recognizing that if there is a part that you would like to play in helping others or things like that, not to assuage your guilt, but to recognize that perhaps you're coming from a place of more privilege than others, that perhaps we can utilize that privilege in order to be there for others as well during this time. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I think I'm sitting with it as well. What are the responsibilities attached to that privilege? Yeah. Any Anything else before we... I think
1: we've covered a lot today. Yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for having me. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're so welcome. Oh, one thing I wanted to say, actually, well, part of the reason I do Asians Do Therapy is to get more Asian folks interested in 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 therapy and not just for therapy but you know because of healing and kind of this process of healing and one thing I would say it's not that all these things that we talked about you know doesn't happen over you know a night a 50-minute podcast or listening to podcasts or reading about it that's one part of it but there's mm-hmm. something about sitting with another human you know yes. in a in a room or through zoom <laughs> <laughs> that I guess I just want to do a plug on therapy, really, because it's yes. it's kind of this emotional resilience that is needed to weather mm-hmm. a pandemic, weather trauma, weather uncertainty is so important. And for those that have access to therapy, that it is something to think about. You know, how do you build this emotional resilience? Mm-hmm. Um, that it can be done through books, through journaling, but that therapy is also one way that could be support that process Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah Mm -hmm. you also do asians for mental health Mm -hmm. an instagram account Mm -hmm. and it's um, very insightful sometimes i read it in the morning and i'm like oh like it gets me thinking about things and i Mm. appreciate you taking the time to do that and and i've noticed it's gotten more personal (laughs) 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 because i'm poking fun at you a little bit because i know (laughs) i know (laughs) I know there, as clinicians, this tension between the personal and the yes. public and that we want to be of service, but at the same time, how much do we share about our personal experiences? And But I just wanted to say that it's been helpful for me to read it and, and um, gets me thinking and feeling about different things. I appreciate mm-hmm. you doing it, and I imagine other people find it helpful as well.
1: Thank you. I appreciate your
0: kind words. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thank you again.
1: Thank you.